I'm going to make him an awfully gambler for you. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time we are looking at Cavalcade, the winner of the 1933 ceremony, so the sixth annual ceremony that covered films released in Los Angeles from August 1st, 1932 till December 31st, 1933. The ceremony itself was in March of 1934. And joining me as always is Trey Hooks. Hello, everyone. Yes, so this time we are looking at Cavalcade, an adaptation of a Noel Coward play produced and directed by Frank Lloyd. The other producer was Winfield Arshian. Screenplay by Reginald Berkeley and Soya Levin. The play that's based on is from 1931. The prominent stars are Diana Winard, Clive Brook, Una O'Connor, and Herbert Munden. So the original release date was April 15th, 1933. Had a 1.1 or closer to $1.2 million budget with a total box office of about $3.5 million. So... It turned a nice profit for 1933. It did. Yeah, and it's it, it's definitely a film that you know it's it's part of a popular genre. I'd say of the bit films we've watched so far, it's closest to Cimarron. Yes, the the generational saga. Yeah, definitely. It starts New Year's Eve, 1899, and follows a well-to-do family and a family that works in their service up until New Year's Day of 1933. So I assume that's a, an adjustment to the play, which I'm guessing probably would have ended more like 1931. So it as we go, we get life's ups and downs. We see joy. We see happiness. We see people who talk about getting married, although we don't see the, the actual weddings. Uh, we see some deaths. And yeah, we get actually... Uh, pretty much a direct speech to the audience as a somewhat of an appeal to the future at the end. So I think those are the broad strokes. And of course we get, uh, when we go through and talk about it in a little more detail here in a moment, we'll get into the the finer details. So Trey, what were your first impressions? I I was a little underwhelmed. It's, it's a well-made film. It is not by any measure an exciting film. It is perhaps the best way I would put it. We we could talk a little bit more about this in a, in a minute. The story was a little too far removed from the events that were impacting the lives of the family, I felt. Yeah, I I could easily agree with that. For our, our listeners, you know, in the film, after the... the uh, 1899 New Year's, there's a uh, military conflict, I I believe it's part of the Boer War, I may have that wrong, where the uh, the fathers of both the upstairs and the downstairs family, for lack of a better way of putting it, enlist, 
And then you see everyone back home fretting about the enlistment and how the military engagement is going. The fathers are gone until that military engagement's over and they come back home. So, so it's purely how are the people back home reacting. Yeah. I got the same, the, the same feel. I was also somewhat underwhelmed. Like, it, it is well done. But yeah, it, it, it just it does feel too far removed from the action. Uh, especially when we're following films like All Quiet on the Western Front that I think have much more effective anti-war stories by putting you on the front line. Or, or even you had mentioned Cimarron. This would be like Cimarron without showing the race for land claims. Just, you know, starting with, father found us a claim, son. He, you know, it, it, it drains all the excitement away from it. But as you mentioned, this was adapted from a stage play. They would not have been able to do those things on the stage, so maybe that's the reason why. It may be. Watching this, to me, it actually reminded me of a conversation on Deep Space Nine. And I, I wish I could come up with the exact episode so I could pull up the exact quote. But Dr. Bashir had just finished reading one of the greatest Cardassian novels of all time, which he did to try and you know, connect with Garrick. And Garrick was saying, well, yeah, this is one of the best ones because in Cardassian literature, they like long novels. It's The Never-Ending Sacrifice is an epic tale spanning seven generations in the history of a Cardassian family, which displayed selfless obedience to Cardassia. So it is that generational story, but the key thing for quality Cardassian literature is that it's exactly 100,000 words and nothing ever happens. <laughs> it's all about the status quo. I just wonder if this is one to where, when this film came out, it would have been between 30 to 20 years before most of the events predicted it, or depicted in the film. Mm -hmm. You and I are both over 100 years away from the time period depicted at the beginning of the film, you know, roughly 80 years away or so away from the time period depicted in the ending. And, and I, I guess we should state this is following an upper-class British family. So uh, as a Canadian and an American, some of these events are cultural touchstones for us as well. Uh, some of them are, are not. I, I've heard of the Siege of Mafeking, but it was not a military engagement that American forces were involved in. So I, I only know it by coming across it in film and television and books and then doing the backpedaling research to find out what it's talking about. It's not something that would have been taught to me in school. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I felt in the same boat. I mean, there's some things that we knew, and some of them were a little obvious. I mean, as it's moving through the generations, we get the title cards with the years. There's one of them where they don't just specify the year, they specify the month and date. Mm -hmm. And that's April 14th, 1912. And I, I saw the date there, and, and something twigged that I couldn't put my finger on. I'm like, no, that, that's significant. This is a very, you know, if they're specifying the date and not just the year like and everything else, they are tying it to a very, very specific historical event. But as you're saying, for the audiences at the time, these weren't historical events. This was life. Right. 
right? These are, you know, if you're in your mid-30s, you were alive for all of it. Although, you know, if you're only in your mid-30s, you're not going to have clear memories of the end of the Boer War. But if you're in your mid-30s, you're going to remember April 14th, 1912. If you don't remember the specific date, you remember the sinking of the Titanic. Right. And just giving that date, and then you hear the conversation of the newlyweds on a honeymoon cruise, and it's just, okay, yep, I know where this is going. But once again, it's nothing that's shown. You know, the newlywed couples making their plans, they walk, they exit the scene, and it shows the little life preserver with the words Titanic on it, scene transition. Now it's the family reacting to the fact that they've lost, you know, this young couple on this um, maritime disaster. Nothing's ever shown or mentioned of what happened to the Titanic other than they were now lost at sea. Yeah, so it does depend on people knowing that the Titanic sank. And I think largely because of the number of times it's been adapted to film, people still do. Yes, yes. Right. This is an event that could have easily faded over time and not meant the same thing to modern audiences as it did then. But it's just like every couple of decades we see another Titanic film coming out. And there was a bit of a lag between the 50s and the 90s to the point that people in the 90s didn't necessarily realize it was based on a true story. But we will get to that <laughs> down the road as well. You know, from an acting perspective, Herbert Munden, as Alfred, is the one that stood out to me most in this film. He and Una O'Connor are the two character actors that people are most likely to be familiar with, predominantly because they will be a double act again, so to speak. Both of them are supporting players in 1938's Adventures of Robin Hood, where once again they, she is a lady-in-waiting of Maid Marian, and he, as one of Robin Hood's merry men, actually play in a relationship together uh, again. But I just thought Herbert was great as Alfred, and seeing what he goes through as he gets out of his position in life, so to speak. Yeah, I would agree with that. Herbert Munden and Margaret, Liz Margaret Lindsay, in her brief appearance as the older Edith Harris, were the two performers that I felt actually had, you know, a modern natural acting style. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in particular, Clive Brook and Diana Winyard, as the Marriott's, Robert and Jane, they were two of the actors who, in particular, were still doing stage acting, which I find doesn't translate well to film because the camera's so much closer. You don't need to exaggerate your motions for the back rows when the camera is closer than the front row. Right. And that is something that... it. This is the era where you get a mix of the stage actors. With sound just coming in, a lot of the silent actors found that they just didn't have the same appeal for audiences when people were imagining a particular voice and it didn't match. It's almost like meeting your favorite radio personality face-to-face -face and, you know, you've just heard their voice on the radio for years. You've, in your mind, you've designed the person who fits around that voice and then you see them and they don't fit at all. They're Wallace Shawn. Yeah. A lot of them just don't line up. So, 
you know, I, I did, that was the opposite problem. So a lot of the early 30s, when the studios were going big and people were still going to movies, but now they're, the stars were fading, that part of the reason that play adaptations became so popular in the 1930s, and not just in the United States, this was happening in England too, is because then they could get the established stage stars to do that performance for the movies and almost bring that stage performance around. So I haven't looked into Brook and Wynyard yet, but I've been wondering if that's part of it, if they were stage actors who perhaps performed in the Noel Coward play on the stage, and that translated through, because sometimes you just get the overblown acting from it. It it, it could be. Um, I, I did a little research into Uno O'Connor because she has one of those voices and faces that you just remember once you've seen her in a few things. And if you've seen her in a 30s-era British film that has a female innkeeper or waitress or barmaid or something of that effect, maybe a governess, chances are it's her in the role. That's, that's predominantly what her career consisted of. And she was a stage actress, and Noel Coward had specifically created the role or written the role of Ellen Bridges with her in mind when he wrote the stage play. Okay. Yeah, I I believe that because she was, I mean, when she was broke down in tears early on, again, when people were breaking down in tears, it's you know dramatic turn away from who they're talking to with the hand coming up to the face. And we saw that from Una O'Connor and Diana Winyard. Mm-hmm. And that, I found that that hurt the film for modern audiences. In 1933, it clearly didn't hurt it that much. This was the second highest grossing film of the year. And obviously we're talking about it. It won Best Picture in the most competitive range. Not necessarily the best films, but this was the final year that the Oscars were awarded by season rather than by calendar year. And in order to do that, because they've been going up until August 1st, this wasn't a 12-month competition. This was a 17-month competition. Right. So, you know, you would think if the quality of films is the same, this would have been the most competitive Academy Award ceremony just because there was the broadest range of, of films to compete. Well, and as you mentioned, for its time, it was a block... It, it, it produced blockbuster numbers. And... I don't think this necessarily affected our enjoyment. I think I do want to call out, you know, th- this is a tragic film. Mm-hmm. You know, we're very much watching a, a, a tragedy in that I think I can say this for a film this old. You know, the the film opens with the fan- with a married couple and the family celebrating their lives together the Marriott couple, Jane and Robert, when the film closes on the uh, 1932 New Year's Eve leading into 1933, they are all that's left of their family. Mm -hmm. So they have grown apart from friends, they've grown apart from the Bridges, and they have outlived their children. And it's, it's a very solemn ending of the film. It is. And that they... They take a moment to point right at the camera or face the camera and make their New Year's Eve speech when they're the only two in the room to the audience. Mm-hmm. They're clearly not speaking to each other and there's no one else in the room to speak to. So they are breaking the fourth wall 
when they do their final toast with anti-war sentiment to the audience. But even then, I found it, it kind of pulled its punches. You know they're talking about war, but they don't actually mention war. It's just, well, let's promote peace. You say this is a very tragic story, but we never see the tragic events depicted directly. Right? You see someone going off to war, and then you see someone reading a telegram saying, oh, he's dead, he's not coming back. You see the couple on the Titanic on April 14th, 1912, and then, oh, we've lost them. Right. This also had the weird message of, we need to do better because of how bad society has gotten. It needs to be like the good old days. You know, for for you and I, this would be like, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s and somebody fondly reminiscing about the 50s. But the film clearly shows you that the early days were not better. And there's a lot of random acts that impact the Marriott's life, but nothing that I think you could point to and say, this happened because of the kids these days type of thing. And I know that wasn't the message, but, you know, everyone made it out of Mafeking all right. You can maybe paint a world in which maybe Alfred's drinking stems from demons that haunt him from the Boer War, but there's nothing in the film that indicates that. So the anti-war message because the younger son uh, died in World War One. like I said, it seems a little off. The sinking of the Titanic was not because of politics or changing mores or anything. So that message they were trying to put forth that I just felt like there was nothing in the play or the film that supported it. But I would agree. Like I said, it showed... It showed a family dealing with tragedy or surviving tragedy would be a better mm-hmm. way to do it because they weren't really dealing with it. Half the time it's, you know, aside from that telegram saying, oh, he's dead, you don't even see the tragic event. There's a time lapse where, you know, the funeral's done, they're well into mourning, they feel the loss. But they're we pick up at the point where they're already moving on with their lives. Right. So it it just, it lacks the impact that it could have had. Also, of minor note, just because I've been tracking actors and actresses as they appear multiple times in the films that we've covered, I am not going to remember the main character's name now, uh, but Beryl Mercer was in All Quiet on the Western Front. She She's the cook here, very minor role. I think she's in two scenes. But she was the uh, main character's mother who was on her, you know, who was very sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he went, when the soldier went back home and all quiet on the Western Front. Okay. Yeah, and she was another one that actually did a, a decent job. Like you said, she mm-hmm. didn't have a huge role. So, but then again, neither did Margaret Lindsay, and I still found that she stood out. She had, what, yes. two scenes as the, the elder Edith? But yes. she was just so natural in it. She stood out because most of the other actors were not natural. Getting into the Academy Awards themselves, in this year, three films had four nominations, and everything else were three or fewer. And this was the last ceremony where four nominations was the record. Everything else had at least one film with five nominations or more (laughs) from that point on. So Cavalcade won three of its four nominations. So it won the Outstanding Production, the equivalent to Best Picture. 
Other nominees were 42nd Street, A Farewell to Arms, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Lady for a Day, Little Women, The Private Life of Henry VIII, She Done Him Wrong, Smiling Through, and State Fair. Note that this is not the State Fair with Judy Garland, but an earlier adaptation. It won Best Director for Frank Lloyd, although it was up against Frank Capra for Lady for a Day and George Kikor for Little Woman. It did not receive a Best Actor nomination. That went to Charles Lawton as Henry VIII in The Private Life of Henry VIII. And then Leslie Howard was nominated for Berkeley Square and Paul Muni for I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Diana Winyard was nominated for Best Actress, although she lost to Catherine Hepburn in Morning Glory. Mae Robson was also nominated for Lady for a Day. You would not have been eligible for Best Original Story. That went to One Way Passage. It was eligible for Best Adaptation, although it was not nominated. That went to Little Women, although Lady for a Day and State Fair were the other two nominations. It won Best Art Direction against A Farewell to Arms and When Ladies Meet. It was not nominated for Best Cinematography. That went to A Farewell to Arms. Well, I guess we know it's not nominated for anything else because that's the four nominations. Mm -hmm. The live-action short-subject comedy went to So This Is Harris. The short-subject novelty went to Krakatoa. Short-subject cartoon went to Disney's Three Little Pigs. And the best sound recording went to A Farewell to Arms up against 42nd Street, Gold Diggers of 1933, and I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Now, this also had a Best Assistant Director, which is often like the second unit director now. So these are the directors that go out and do the scenery shots. So they're not working with the principal actors. If you need establishing shots to say we're in Hollywood or New York, they're the ones that go and film the landmarks. That's the assistant director role. So those were not tied to films. Those were tied to studios. And from what I see, there were seven winners out of 18 nominees. So Charles Barton for Paramount, Scott Beale for Universal, Charles Dorian for MGM, Fred Fox for United Artists, Gordon Hollingshead for Warner Brothers, Dewey Starkey for RKO, and William Tummel for 20th Century Fox all shared that award. So if you sit on the Academy board, you get one, and you get one, and you get one. Yeah, I'm not sure how that award worked, and I'm not surprised that that category has kind of gone away, but yeah, that was there for the year. So so that's the way the Oscars played out. Now, like we said, we've heard Farewell to Arms and Lady for a Day with four nominations each, three nominations each for I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang and Little Women, and two nominations each for 42nd Street, Private Life of Henry VIII, and State Fair. And Farewell to Arms was the other multiple award winner with two awards. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. I know that neither of us have seen all of the nominees, but I know that we've at least both seen one of the other nominees. How did this beat I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang? I couldn't tell you. Uh, Popularity of the generational saga uh, genre, popularity of Noel Coward, just plain showed in more theaters because I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang was banned in parts of the States for the content. I I don't get it. Personally, for my money, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is hands down the better film. It is. I've seen 42nd Street. I think 42nd Street is a better film than Cavalcade. I, I just don't see the attraction with this one. Uh, well, I, I can tell you that 
it, history has not been kind to Cavalcade. As you you know, I also collate the IMDb ratings. I've been generally doing advanced searches with everything in the eligibility period, ideally with at least a thousand votes. Now this one I did have to go through and lower the number of votes before I could get all the nominees to show up on the list, because some of them just are not readily available to modern audiences and don't have a thousand votes yet. At that thousand vote minimum, there are 66 films that show up as eligible on the list. Now, State Fair, Smiling Through, and Private Life of Henry VIII didn't have that many votes. If they had, State Fair would slot somewhere between 48 and 49, Smiling Through between 45 and 46th place, and Private Life of Henry VIII between 35th and 36th. So if we, you know, if we extended enough then to get those three in there, that's where they were. Cavalcade, out of those 69 entries, IMDb users would put it in 67th place. Letterboxd users put it dead last. Yeah, I just, I, I, I well, it, it clearly doesn't hold up, you know. I, I know you've guessed it with him, and I, I'm a regular listener of Is It Jaws? And Paul will frequently talk about, you know, how after roughly the 80s, he thinks, you know, the the Academy kind of start, stopped representing the average person. The box office clearly shows this resonated when this film came out, but but it just doesn't today. And, and, you know, on prior podcasts, you know, we've talked about, you know, genre preferences coming through on lists like this. You know, the universal horror movies tend to be higher ranked or at the period we're in the Marx Brothers later on, I'm sure a lot of the Abbott and Costello comedies will top the list just because of people's affection for them. But the disparity here is so huge and they're... Just as I'm scanning the list, there's everything from slapstick comedies to adventure films to horror films to musicals to stateroom dramas that are all on this list ahead of Cavalcade. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Letterboxd users, every movie released that year is on the list ahead of Cavalcade. Yeah. And some of that is, frankly, unfair because... The one that IMDb users put at the bottom of the pile is The Vampire Bat, <laughs> which I have seen, and it is very much an attempt to cash in on Frankenstein and Dracula with uh, an amalgam of the two. It is not a better film than Cavalcade, but Letterboxd users have ranked it slightly higher. Yeah, it is, but both sites agree it is the worst of the nominations. Going through things from the top, Uses on both sites will put Trouble in Paradise at number one, which I don't believe either of us have seen. No. Now, Internet Movie Database users put Gold Diggers of 1933 in second place. Letterboxd tends to, to have a, a bias more in line with the critics than the general audiences, so they put Gold Diggers in sixth. After that, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is number two on Letterboxd, number three on the IMDb. Both sites follow that with Duck Soup. Which, which, other than a night at the opera, most most aficionados consider Duck Soup to be the best Marx Brothers film. Yeah, and I wasn't a huge fan of Duck Soup, but it probably is the best Marx Brothers film that I've seen so far. Uh, Letterboxd puts King Kong in fourth place. It comes out in sixth mm -hmm. after One Way Passage on IMDb. 
And while I would say that, yeah, King Kong is probably the most famous now more for spectacle than story, because it was quite the spectacle to see in the day. I I wouldn't say it's the best picture. No. I mean, no. I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang was also extremely well made. It was well acted. It was well written. It was based on a true story, and it had something to say. All qualities that generally do well with the Academy. I, I don't know if it made the FI best quotes list, but but the ending of that movie is just phenomenal. Yeah. I, I don't think it made the AFI list, but it should have. We've got The Invisible Man. I mean, we talked about H.G. Wells in the past, mm-hmm. although I don't recall if we were on mic or not at the time. I, I don't think we were, but... Yeah, uh, The Invisible Man comes out 8th on Letterboxd and 12th on the IMDb. We've got Horse Feathers, another Marx Brothers film in here. Uh, we've got 42nd Street. We've got Dinner at Eight. Little Women, Pack Up Your Troubles. There's a lot that, mm-hmm. you know, have kind of stood the test of time. There's the original Mystery of the Wax Museum. It's this one I, you know, we had about a month's notice and I finally watched Cavalcade last night and it was tight because I've decided to go through all these and see what the, the higher rank movies were and try to rent try to watch anything of higher rank that I actually own. And that added a lot of movies to my list for this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to do something similar. I I didn't make it all the way through. Um, but, uh, well, just uh, the three other nominees that I saw were I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Lady for a Day, and 42nd Street. And... If I were to rank them, I would say I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang was the superior film and the clear winner. Next would be 42nd Street, then Lady for a Day, and then at the bottom, Cavalcade. Yeah. I mean, for, for a long time, I thought that there was only one year where I didn't even understand why the winner was nominated, let alone one. Mm-hmm. This is one where you know, I'm only ambivalent on it because I haven't seen enough of the competition. Of the movies I've seen, I do understand Cavalcade's nomination, but not its win. Right. So perhaps if I'd seen more from this year, I I would have a differing opinion. If I were to choose right now, I would say I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is the clear best picture of the year. We're talking around it because it unfortunately wasn't the winner uh, this year. I don't know what episode number it was, but if you want better coverage of I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. I do know that it was one of the films that Rob Kelly covered on the Film and Water podcast. So if our brief mentions have made you want to uh, check it out or interested in it, uh, and you want to hear a little bit more about it, I would recommend um, searching for and finding that episode of the Film and Water podcast. Okay. I may have to do just that. And Is It Jaws is the other podcast that we have mentioned so far with uh, Paul Spataro and his rotating guest hosts. But finally, who would you recommend Cavalcade to? If you enjoy stage drama, this film might be for you. I I can't... If you liked Cimarron, you might like um, this film because it's of a similar uh, genre. I I almost wanted to say if you're a fan of things that are historical or pseudo-historical, the only caveat I would give is, as we've said, those events are the backdrop. They're not actually covered 
in the film itself. I did not, you know, we've often talked about, you know, family friendly. I don't think there's anything particularly objectionable in this film. I don't think it would hold anyone other than a young adult's attention today. And even then, they would have to be a cinephile of some kind. Yeah, if this wasn't winner of Best Picture, I don't think I'd have ever watched it. It's, yeah, it, again, it's not unfamily to families. It, it was coming out when the Hays Code existed, but was not enforced. <laughs> uh, at least not what the rigor it would be come 1934. So it was kind of building to that, but they weren't there yet. As you may have noticed, had you seen the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde adaptation we discussed last time. But, yeah, again, I, I'm with you. If you if you were a fan of Cimarron, this is similar. If you're a fan of Noel Coward, then you might as well check it out. If you're a Cardassian and like long stories that go nowhere, then go ahead. But, yeah, it, uh, there's no one I would really say rush out and watch it. If you're interested already, then I would say go ahead and check it out, but don't let your hopes get up too high. Anyway, I think that about wraps it up, unless you have any closing thoughts. Uh, <clears throat> no, I, I, I do just want to throw this out there, <clears throat> and, and I think I can speak for you when I say this. This is not a bad film. Um, I, I don't think it caters to my taste. I don't think it caters to um, Blaine's taste. And as part of this um, podcast, we're always going to be talking about, you know, was it of the same caliber as the other nominees? You know, do we think it should have won? The, the fact that we're saying that we believe that there was a clear, in our opinions, there was another film that clearly should have won. This is not The Vampire Bat. So I don't want anyone to walk away thinking, you know, this is a horrible film. You know, it's a bad film. It's not. It just suffers in comparison. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like I said, I understand its nomination. I just don't understand its win, given what I've seen of the competition. And as you mentioned, extremely strong year. In other years, I could see Dinner at Eight being nominated. Mm -hmm. So I, anyway, like we said, I think that about wraps this up. Again, feedback can be sent to Bureau42Podcasts at gmail.com. So Trey and I will probably record one-off episodes reading the, any email feedback that we have on the air. And you can join us again the last Wednesday of next month when we take a look at It Happened One Night from 1934 and the 7th Annual Awards. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.